Good morning, everybody. And welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here on this beautiful April day. If we haven't met before, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And we are so glad that you joined us. So last week, we wrapped up our 15-week-long journey through the story of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Luke. Dave did a great job wrapping it up. Highly recommend you go give it a listen if you have not. And if you've been at Vista for any amount of time, then you know that we like to take a fairly, uh, a fairly eclectic approach to preaching. So like sometimes we just, we just walk through books of the Bible like we just did with Luke for a few months. And then sometimes we'll, we'll follow the church calendar, you know, seasons like Advent or Easter. And then sometimes we explore topics for a season. And all of it's good and it has its place because an eclectic approach to preaching is actually very biblical. For example... There were times where Jesus just preached through a passage of Scripture. You know, his very first sermon, you remember? It's out of Luke 4. He reads from Isaiah 61. Then he gets up and he just talks about it. And he says, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Shortest sermon in the history of the world. It was great. Everybody loved it. They even beat the Unitarians to to lunch that day, right? So sometimes Jesus would do that. He just walked through Scripture. But then a lot of the time, actually most of the time, what Jesus would do to teach is he would talk to people about God by just telling them stories and making observations about the world around them. We call these stories and observations parables. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus always used them when he taught. All that to say... The Bible itself teaches us that biblical, gospel-centered preaching is not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing, but can actually take many different forms. And we try to practice all those forms here at the Vista, A, because it's biblical, and then B, because it's a lot of fun. You're going to hear a lot of sermons in your life. You don't want to have the same thing every single time, right? So all that to say, this week, we're switching gears a little bit, and we're offering our latest update to a fun little series that we like to do every once in a while, a series called Songs. Finding God in the music. And the premise of the series is really quite simple. Each week, we take a song. It's usually a fairly new song. We take a song and we listen to it. We listen to what it's saying. We listen to what it's asking. And then we put it in conversation with Scripture to see how that harmonizes or clashes with Christian faith. We find God in the music because the music, as it so happens, is one of the very best places to find God. Now, Martin Luther, any of you know Martin Luther? He was kind of the, the hero of the Protestant Reformation. He was a very, very big deal. Here's a painting of old Martin Luther. He was a very serious man. You can tell from this painting, right? Can you imagine how long he had to hold that face? 15 hours of that face. He was a very serious man. He took his faith very seriously, took God very seriously. He also took music very, very seriously. And he had a very strong opinion that people who did not properly appreciate music had a very serious problem, and so he had some very serious words for them. Okay, Here's what Brother Martin said. This is maybe my favorite quote ever. He says, A person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. It's so fun to be able to say that. I have no use for cranks who despise music. Amen. Because it is a gift of God. Music, it drives away the devil and it makes people happy. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the highest honor. We know that to the devils, music is distasteful and insufferable. But my heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music. So, yeah, amen. According to Brother Martin, if you don't like music, 
then, well, you are, you are a clodhopper. You don't want to be a clodhopper, man. You don't want to be one of And a crank who probably worships the devil. That's what Martin said. Now, I know that we modern people, we're all very polite, and we're all very, very sensitive. So I will not go as far as Brother Martin. But I will say that I basically agree with everything that he said. And it does seem to me as though God put the music in us. Amen? Amen. Amen. I do think God put the music in us. And so... All that said, our first song in this year's songs series comes from one of the most famous and successful bands in the whole world. Uh, They've sold millions of albums. They won seven Grammy Awards. And most importantly, they are the first artists to appear in our song series for a second time. So I'm going to give you a chance to make a guess. We've got some nice swag here, a little tumbler, some cool stickers. If you would like to guess who this week's artist is, get your hand up. First person to get it right gets the swag. Biggest band in the world, more or less. They also are appearing in our song series for a second time. Do we have any guesses? Yes. Not Jonas Brothers. This is a good guess. It's a good guess. Yes. Also a very good guess, Matt Stroud, but it's not you two. Very close to you two. That's in the ballpark. No, you can guess. It's fine. Your hands is up. Can we get a spotlight on her? I'm just kidding. Yes. That was a good guess. That's what she guessed. Not the Beatles. Good guess, though. Come on now. You, guys, we've only done two song series. What? Queen? Scott Lyles. This is America, man. Actually, that's not a good hint. Any other guesses? What? Dave Matthews. Also a good guess. Not Dave Matthews. Wow. Coldplay. Thank you, Whitney. You get, can you deliver that to Whitney at some point? Coldplay, my goodness gracious people. The first song in this year's song series is called Daddy by Coldplay off their latest album. So the way this works, I'm going to read the lyrics to you so we all have them kind of ringing in our ears before we listen, and then we'll listen to the song together. All right, lyrics are very simple. It's a very simple song. Daddy, are you out there? Daddy, won't you come and play? Daddy, do you not care? Is there nothing that you want to say? Now, I know you're hurting too, but I need you, I do. Daddy, if you're out there, Daddy, all I want to say, here's the chorus, very simple. You're so far away. That's okay. It's okay. I'm okay. Verse 2. Daddy, are you out there? Daddy, why'd you run away? Daddy, are you okay? Look, Dad, we got the same hair. Daddy, it's my birthday. And all I want to say is you're so far away. Won't you come and won't you stay? Please stay one day, just one day. All right, Daddy by Coldplay.
So that song, um, man, it's, it's really about as simple as it gets in a lot of ways. Right? The words are simple. The chords are simple. The arrangement's simple. In a lot of ways, it's, it's a song that only a child could write. Right? And that's what's so powerful about this simple little song. Every single one of us in here today was, is, and in some sense always will be a child. Right? Somebody's child, to be specific. And being somebody's child, somebody's parent, is just about the most wonderful and challenging thing than any of us in here will ever do. Amen? One of the things I love most about this song is the way it expresses grief, but it avoids blame. Did you notice that? The song's filled with grief, but there's really not any blame in it, which is no small feat because if there's anything that we humans love to do when we're hurt, it's what? We love to blame others when we're hurt. Some of you might have noticed that you have this habit of, uh, of cursing when you hurt yourself. Anybody? Maybe just me. I somewhat doubt it. And scientists tell us that we do this because it, it literally makes us feel better, right? When you, like, you know, hurt something, hurt your finger, jam your finger, saying a, a naughty word, it literally causes a rush of adrenaline to shoot through your body, and it makes you feel better. So next time it happens, you can just tell people it's science. You know, it's science. It's just the way you were designed. And, and I cannot confirm this next observation, but I have this, this hunch that uh, blaming others when we're hurt functions in much the same fashion as cursing when we jam our finger. It makes us feel better. And it helps numb our pain. And so we love to blame others when we're hurt. And so we would expect this song about fatherlessness, about a failed father, to be filled with a very understandable sense of blame. But it's not. There's no finger pointing, no finger wagging, no hostility, no condemnation. And the song is ultimately an invitation. It's a kid saying, Dad, you failed me, man. You weren't here, and I've got some wounds because of that, but I know that you've got wounds too, because I know you're human too, and I just want you to be okay, so just come home, just come home, and maybe we can find some healing together. The beauty, the power of this song is that it voices profound grief, but it resists the temptation to blame. Because its ultimate desire is for the communion between a father and his child. So we've heard the music. Let's find God in it now. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Malachi 4. Very end of the Old Testament. So literally, you turn to Matthew, then just to the left, a page. And you'll be in Malachi 4. It'll be on the screen as well. And we're going to read the last chapter of the Old Testament. Maybe you've, you've never done that before. We'll read the last chapter of the Old Testament here. <clears throat> Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6. Prophet Malachi here says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall." You'll tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Now remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet 
before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. The hearts of the children to their fathers. So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Malachi 4 verses 1 through 6. So here in Malachi 4, uh, the prophet speaks to us of something that he and other prophets called the great and terrible day of the Lord. It shows up a lot in the prophetic books. This decisive moment in history when God would finally intervene in the world and set everything right. Then he mentions uh, Elijah the prophet, <clears throat> this great Hebrew prophet who it was rumored would, would return on the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that would mark the end of the world as we know it and the beginning of the world as God wants it. And so when Elijah comes back and God finally sets the world right, what's it going to look like? What's going to happen? What should we be looking for? Well, here's what Malachi says in the two verses that end the Old Testament. Listen to this. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. What's he going to do? He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And how interesting is it that the Old Testament ends not with some cosmic promise of victory on the grandest scale imaginable, but with this teeny tiny promise of reconciliation on the smallest scale possible. Because Elijah is going to return, okay? And God will set things right one day. And what that will mean first and foremost and most importantly is that God is going to start putting families back together. God's going to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, the hearts of children back to their fathers. The first sign that God's new world is arriving in our old, broken, fallen, sinful world is that God is going to start putting families back together. It's the last verses of the Old Testament. I love the way Fleming Rutledge puts this. She's this great Episcopalian preacher. She says, Malachi 4 has all sorts of apocalyptic imagery. It depicts the coming of the Lord of hosts and the final judgment of the wicked. So the passage has this huge cosmic setting in view at first. Then, suddenly and unexpectedly, it narrows down to a very small focus. Family conflict. This is the worst of all curses. If the hearts of the parents are not turned to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents, the result will be a permanent condition of living under the wrath of God. That's why the prophet Malachi speaks about the repairing of family relationships as the sign of the final triumph of God over the wickedness of the human race. Now, many of us in here today are parents. And many of us are not. But regardless whether or not we're parents, every single one of us is a child. I learned that in sex ed in sixth grade. <laughs> every single one of us is a child. And in no uncertain terms, the very last thing the Old Testament tells us is what? 
God is on a mission to redeem the entire world, and it's going to happen. And you've got a very important role to play in that, and the most important thing that you can do to do your part in God's redemption of the entire cosmos is not storm the capital, and it's not save the country, and it's not rid the world of poverty. No, the most important thing that you can do to do your part in God's redemption of the universe is to let God bring healing and forgiveness and redemption in your family. That's what Malachi says. Now, according to numerous surveys, over 40% of American children now grow up in fatherless families. Try to put that number a different way. Over 25 million American children are growing up right now without their dads involved. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Some of them are simple. Some of them are very complicated. But regardless of the reasons for it, the consequences of it are clear. And they're really, really devastating. Now, to just give you a brief feel for how devastating these consequences are, throw a few stats at you here. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 85% of youths in prison come from fatherless homes. 90% of homeless or runaway children come from fatherless homes. And probably most tragic of all, fatherlessness is the most common characteristic of youths who commit suicide. So when you look at children who commit suicide, what's the most common characteristic? They didn't have their dad around. That's what happened most frequently. And this fatherlessness epidemic that we are in the middle of right now, it has coincided and probably not coincidentally, with our present odd cultural moment wherein both men and women really don't know what to do with men. And you've probably noticed that even if you didn't quite know how to explain it or articulate what you were feeling, you noticed something very strange was going on in the modern world with men. Because on the one hand, it is great that men no longer get to simply rule over women. Right? All the women in the crowd said, amen. It's a wonderful thing. It's great that thousands of years of misogyny are being slowly undone. That's a great thing. And so it's good that we are calling out and trying to move past toxic forms of masculinity. That is great. But it is not so great that in our attempt to move past toxic forms of masculinity, we have often ended up treating all masculinity as if it's toxic. Are you following with me here? There are forms of toxic masculinity. We need to call it out. We need to move past it. But not all masculinity is toxic. And yet you you might think it was uh, had you just been kind of listening to what's going around nowadays. For example, the the APA, the American Psychological Association, uh, has suggested that traditional masculinity be considered a psychological illness. All right, so if you're a melon here and you're just kind of a traditional dude, then the APA has suggested that you have a mental illness. Right, that's kind of a tough thing to hear, right? Or uh, recently there was the uh, Washington Post op-ed by a very prestigious professor that was titled, and I quote, Why Can't We Hate Men? Pretty to the point. Um, or if you want to have a fun you know, Sunday afternoon with your spouse, you get on Twitter and you check out the hashtag Kill all men, which is also fairly self-explanatory, I think. Um, and it would be easy to brush all this aside, <clears throat> you know, with some like, uh, you know, some just hysterics from a few fringe lunatics, you know, but we shouldn't pay too much attention to it. 
But I actually think it's quite clear that a lot of these ideas are seeping into our culture and the church on a very foundational, foundational level. For example, this is just utterly fascinating to me. Dads-to-be are now twice as likely to prefer a daughter to a son. And 80% of aspiring parents would now prefer a girl to a boy. Isn't that just fascinating? I'm not saying better good. It's just a fascinating thing. And it's all happened very, very quickly. Now, to be clear... It is a great thing that girls and women are now cherished and empowered in ways they were not before. I have a little one-year-old girl, and I'm glad that no dude's just going to be bossing her around. They got, they got something coming if they try to boss Quinn Marie Frisher around. I'm glad for that. But I don't think that hating and killing and insulting all the men is a very promising premise for a better future. And we've got to stop treating men like they are stupid, violent, calloused, and lazy just because they are men. And all the men in the room said, amen. And so if you're a guy here in the room today, and if you're not, but especially if you're a guy, there are two things that I really want you to walk away from today understanding. Okay, two things. Here's the first one. It's very simple. You're not crazy if you feel conflicted, confused, chastised, and cranky. Okay? It is a weird time to be a man. There are a lot of things going on. A lot of it's really good. A lot of it's really bad. A lot of it, we don't know yet. You know, we don't know how it's all going to turn out. But all that to say, it's a strange time to be a man, and you're not crazy if you feel a little bit confused. Now, that said, the second and far more important thing that I want you to understand is equally important. Okay, here it is. Real men, right? You want to be a real man? Real men don't place blame. Real men take responsibility. Okay? Real men don't place blame. They take responsibility. Because here's the deal. Let's take the gloves off for a second here. Here's the deal. I, I know it's a weird time to be a man. Trust me, I, I get it. It's a weird time to be a man. And I know that so many of you feel insulted and confused and chastised. And I know that so much of it is not your fault. But it doesn't matter whose fault it is because what matters is taking responsibility. Because that's what Christians do. Because that's what Jesus did, right? I mean, y'all, was my sin was your sin, was the sin of the world, was that Jesus' fault? No, the correct answer is no, it was not Jesus' fault. But he didn't stand there at the cross, angry, muttering to himself, but, 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 this isn't my fault, this isn't my fault, I shouldn't have to deal with this. No, instead of placing blame, Jesus took responsibility, and he has commanded us to do the same. It doesn't matter if it's your fault, you raise your hand if you're a Christian, and you take responsibility. Right, that's what we do, Okay. Thank you for that clap. And so that said, I, I want to end by trying to come full circle here and narrowing this idea down to it's just like simplest, purest, most actionable expression. Okay, I'm going to read you three texts out of 1 Timothy, and then we'll talk about them briefly. Paul says, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. Because if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, then how's he going to take care of the church of God? Just a few verses later, verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. A couple chapters later, this is from chapter 5. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their, par grand to their parents. And all the grandparents said, 
Amen. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now listen up here, this last verse. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's what Paul said. And so in these three little anecdotes about proper behavior in the church, Paul essentially says what Malachi has said to close the Old Testament. The world is broken, but very beautiful place. And God has gladly taken responsibility for it. And the most important thing that you can do to share in that healing responsibility for the world's brokenness is to take responsibility to serve those around you, starting with your family. Because I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think you got going on, how many important things you've got to do. None of us has anything more important to do than love and serve our families because the redemption of the world will either start or not start in our families. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We come before you and we are your beloved sons and daughters. We do not deserve to be here, but we are here because of your great mercy. And so rooted in that, we confess that in a lot of ways we have been sucked into this blame game. We just walk around blaming others instead of taking responsibility. And we confess that it's it's, it's a weird time to be a man in particular. It's an odd thing. There are a lot of great things happening that we want to affirm and celebrate for our, our sisters in Christ. But then also we just want to confess that there's a lot of things going on that it's hard to make sense of. And it's easy to get just angry and calloused and irritated. But instead of doing that, instead of getting blamey, God, give us the grace to take responsibility. God, for all these kiddos growing up in homes without their dads or dads who are there not really there, I pray that you get a hold of their hearts. Help them to see that they got nothing better to do than love their families. I pray for the tension that I know exists in so many households this morning that are represented here, that you would begin your healing work, that we could no longer lie to ourselves, that it's not important, but God, know that you want to make our spouses, our children, our brothers, our parents, our grandparents, our priority. It is where your redemption of the world begins. And may it begin here today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.